Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we think you're really going to like this one. In fact, we're pretty sure it's a shoo-in. <laughs> yep. This week, we're talking about the archaeology and history of shoes. And specifically, that study of shoes is calchaeology. Mm-hmm. Yep. Calchaeology comes from the Latin calcae, meaning shoes, and <laughs> the Greek logia, meaning logi. Um, and it's the <laughs> and that is the study of footwear. So we had said that this was a chimera word, but this was like a real a real moment. Like this is like a common occurrence where Anna suggests something like in good faith, and I think it's a joke. And then just yes and it, and then we spread disinformation. So it's less a chimera word and more a hybrid word. Or a barbarism. A barbarism. As it used to be called. Yep. So, calchaeology, the study of footwear, especially historical footwear, whether as archaeology or like a shoe fashion history um, or otherwise. Um, it's not yet formally recognized as a field of research, so you can't go get your master's in calchaeology. But until then, calchaeology comprises the examination, registration, research, and conservation of leather shoe fragments. Probably other shoe fragments as well, I would imagine. Vegan shoes too. And oh, So a wider definition of calchaeology includes the study the general study of the ancient footwear, its social and cultural history, technical aspects of pre-industrial shoemaking, and associated leather trades, as well as, but not, but not leather trades. Okay. As well as <laughs> reconstruction of archaeological footwear. Right. And so to study historical shoes or ancient shoes, the question then becomes, well, when do we start wearing shoes? And... This is a really interesting study that takes into account um, what happens when we wear shoes. So when we wear shoes, it changes the way that we walk and how our bodies distribute weight. If you wear shoes regularly, as most modern humans do, at least in the Western world, um, those changes end up reflected in your bones and ligaments. So for example, wearing very tight shoes can lead to bunions, which are <laughs> painful enlargements of the bone or the what? what was the bunions. <laughs> bunions. Um, so it's painful enlargements of the bone or tissue in the big toe. People who don't wear shoes have wider feet and bigger gaps between their big toe and the other four toes because those muscles are more developed. Women who spend a lot of time in high heels wind up with smaller calf muscles. So we know about all of those changes. Those are documented. Eric Trinkhaus, an anthropologist at Washington University in St. Louis, was the first person to apply this understanding of how fashion alters our physical bodies to anthropology. He found a point in human history where the size of toe bones began to shrink. Like, so like all certain, of them? Well, at a certain point, yeah, you, you, can, you can trace back, you can graph the size of toe bones. Of but like ancient and... All of them? Not just like the big one or... Yeah, yeah, all of them, probably most, mostly the big, uh, sorry, the littlest toe, the pinky toe. It's probably to the most, the largest extent that toe. But yeah, all, to, Mine all the toes. Mine is very small. Does that mean that 
I descend from you, early shoe you wearers. wear lots of shoes. That's not true. <laughs> I don't know what it means specifically for you. It means you got a cute little pinky toe. But um, so he, Trinkhouse, found this point in history where um, the trend started to become that the toe bones were getting smaller. Combining those data with knowledge of how shoes change the way people walk, Trinkhouse reasoned that the smaller toe bones must have meant that people had started wearing shoes around that time. Um, so the oldest surviving shoes that we know about archaeologically are only about 10,000 years old. But Trinkhouse's discovery, based on toe bone size, pushed the adoption of footwear back to almost 30,000 years ago. And he published that research in 2005. So that's been around for a while. Then in the July 2008 issue of the Journal of Archaeological Science, um, Trinkhouse released an article that shows that humans might have been wearing shoes even earlier, about 40,000 years ago. Um, and so here's a quote from Tim Weaver. I know him. <laughs> um, he's here at UC Davis. But he said, Bone, at least to a certain extent, responds during a person's lifetime to the mechanical stresses placed on it. If you work out at the gym, not only will your muscles get bigger, but your bones will become thicker. For most of their history, humans had big old thick toe bones. And, you know, this is because they were walking, climbing, carrying. They were doing all these things. And and for a long time, it was likely without foot coverings. Um, all of their leg bones were also bigger as well for the same reasons. And this is true for early modern humans and also Neanderthals. But around 40,000 years ago, the skeletal evidence shows that these things begin to change. Around 40,000 years ago, uh, Trinkhouse noticed a trend that skeletons from this time period still have these very strong, thick leg bones, but the toes are starting to get smaller. Quote from Trinkhouse, they had wimpy toes, he said. I tried to figure out what would take away stresses on the toes, but not the legs, and the answer was shoes. Tim Weaver agrees with Trinkhouse's theory, but another researcher, Susan Cashel, uh, she's an anthropologist at Rutgers University, and she does not buy it. She points out that not long after the time period that Trinkhouse looked at, humans uh, stopped being quite so active, and all of their limb bones, not just the toes, start to shrink over time. And so she commented, quote, if the foot bones are smaller, this probably reflects less walking and physical activity rather than the invention of supportive footwear. So... Maybe, no pun intended, but I, I don't know where I stand on that. Maybe, maybe shoes, question mark. Maybe shoes, maybe sitting? Maybe shoes. Well, not so much sitting, but not ranging quite as far. I mean, to do, like, like sitting at all. Oh, like, yeah. Like taking a break? Like take, yeah. Hanging take out? Take off, Neanderthal. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, it's okay. it's interesting. So shoes? Mm-hmm. Okay. 40,000 years ago. Shoes? So let us now take a journey into the cave of forgotten shoes. Werner Herzog's less <laughs> less beautiful. It's film. the one he should have done. Um, Tbh. So this is um, this is pulled from a Sapiens article by Stephen Nash. Not the basketball player. Not presumably not. Okay, I don't know. Judging from a comparison of their two headshots. <laughs> okay. So. <clears throat> Unlike stone tools and ceramic pot shirts, footwear made of perishable materials such as leather, fur, and plant fibers, um, it's not well preserved in open-air archaeological sites. But perpetually dry caves, those that are naturally cut off from groundwater sources and precipitation and have little excess humidity, oh, that sounds nice, um, they, <laughs> they do a remarkable job of protecting perishable materials. And the American Southwest 
is where you got to go if you want to find yourself a dry cave. So <laughs> brought to you by the American Southwest Tourist Board. The American Southwest. We've got some great dry caves. <laughs> When archaeologists Paul Sidney Martin and John Beach Rinaldo of Chicago's Field Museum excavated Tularosa Cave in 1950, they recovered an astonishing array of objects. In addition to the standard set of pottery shirts, figurines, agricultural implements, and other stone and bone tools, they recovered 33,000 corn cobs. That's so many corn cobs. (laughs) Including some with the kernel still attached. They also found 1,700 pieces of cotton string, exquisite reed basket fragments, and yucca fiber knots, nets, and rope. And they recovered more than 200 sandals and moccasins. So that's 100 pairs. (laughs) Well, (laughs) unclear. (laughs) Giving us a detailed look at ancestral Puebloan footwear in that region from about 300 to 1200 CE. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify something in the article. So the fact that these are in caves, you might think, oh, these are like some kind of offering. But no, these are um, these aren't like you make a pair of shoes and make them and and give them as an offering. These are sandals that have been worn through. So there were like big holes where like your whole heel would have been poking out. So these are like oh, these defunct. are like most of my sandals. <laughs> cool. Sure. Yeah. Well, this is you, maybe this. Do you is, live in a cave? Maybe this is where I can take my Birkenstocks to. <laughs> um, as unusual. As it may seem at first glance, Tularosa Cave is not, in fact, all that unusual when it comes to the large number of well-preserved sandals and moccasins found there. Dry caves in the American West are disproportionately full of such footwear and contain far fewer items of clothing. I mean, it was hot. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Ceremonial Cave near El Paso, Texas, yielded... 1,200 sandals. A cave near Navajo Reservoir in northern New Mexico contained 1,000. The Promontory Cave Complex near Pro- the Great Salt promontory. Lake. The Promontory Cave Complex near the Great Salt Lake in Utah has numerous children's moccasins. Why do caves contain so many shoes? Based on the <laughs> <laughs> question for the ages. Why is a raven like a writing desk? Octavia Satewa, chair of the Zuni Cultural Resources Advisory Team, suggests that caves offer a point of connection between this world and the underworld. Sandals are a person's individual point of connection to the earth. It therefore makes sense to discard sandals in caves. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And if you thought that was cool, check this out. Have you ever gone hiking and seen the footprint of a hiker who came before you? I've not. Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. Um, I have. Okay. Cool. In all likelihood, you noticed a boot print unique to a manufacturer, but not to the wearer. In the ancient Southwest, you may have been able to use a footprint to identify the specific wearer. One of the surprising things about ancient sandals is that they often had unique designs on their soles. They served as identification cards because you knew how to read those markers, plus signs and clues, as in, like, you know, something like bent or broken branches, trail markers, etc. In the environment, you can figure out if you know anyone who has passed by recently. Yeah, so you can see if it's a fresh footprint and go like, oh, Jeff was here. Huh. I don't know. Yeah, isn't that cool? That is cool. It's very yeah. cool. Let's leave the caves and take an around-the-world-ish tour of old shoes. Can you think of anything more exciting? Yes. Oh, well, this is what we're doing. So okay. we're starting in ancient Egypt with King Den's sandal label. So this is an ivory tag that is from around uh, 2985 BCE, and 
These labels were often made and attached to oil jars, usually decorated with representations of important events that marked a particular year in a king's reign, and that would be a way to record the date of production. So this example shows King Den about to bring his mace down on the head of a fallen enemy. Doink. The king's name is written in front of his face in a rectangular frame, so a little cartouche, surmounted by the falcon god Horus, the patron deity of kingship. Why are you giggling? Because it's like a Ben Garrison cartoon. He labels everything ad nauseum. Oh. (laughs) The hieroglyphs on the right-hand side tell us the name of this important event. Quote, the first occasion of smiting the East. Oh my god, mazel! (laughs) (laughs) The long hair and pointed beard of the enemy that Den is bonking on the head with his mace are typical of the way that ancient Egyptians depicted foreigners from the East. The gravel-spotted desert rising to a hill on the right places the action in a foreign land. So this this label was from a pair of the king's sandals that were from his tomb. Um, Also, there are some socks. So we, we covered a pair of Egyptian socks on Old News a while back, but this is a different pair, um, and they are bright red, and they have two toes, like two toe compartments. So... It, the way it looks, I am imagining it's for big toe and then the yeah. rest of the toes. But the way it looks and the way it's like stuffed as an, a display in the photo, it's like it looks this like person had four toes it, and it they looks were like of it's equal for length. like a cloven hoof. It's like it does pig it's socks, very... socks for pigs, socks for ooh. Hello and welcome to Shark Tank. I'm here to promote my pig socks. I'm out. <laughs> Um, so Smithsonian has an article about these forked socks, but, um, we may not put it in the show notes because it takes a turn at the end into ancient aliens. And I, okay. I wasn't so, a but fan. it's in Smithsonian. Yeah. It, which was odd because it like the fact that it is forked and the toes are kind of long. The, the author is like, Ooh, it's like ET socks. Yeah, that's the right face to be making. So we may or may not post that. Just know that it exists, and you can look it up on Smithsonian if you're interested in finding it. What's next on our tour? Next up, Paducah. Paducah is the name of India's oldest, most quintessential footwear. So it's basically just a sole, shoe sole, any other sole. As opposed to my everlasting sole. Or like the fish. Um, So it's a sole with a post and a knob, which you put between the big and the second toe yeah so it's the shape of a foot and then where a flip-flop would go into the sole but then there's no straps it's just and that's amazing to me i would fall on my face so very quickly i mean not if i had grown up wearing them but hey no tan lines right well you'd get like a little circle on top of your toes Hmm. um yeah you should wear sunscreen it exists in a variety of forms and materials throughout India. They uh, might be made in the shape of actual feet or fish, like so, um, for example. And oh, they're yeah. made of wood, ivory, and even silver. They're sometimes elaborately decorated. The, the more elaborate ones could be part of a bride's trousseau, but it could also be given <laughs> as religious offerings or be themselves the object of veneration. Although simple wooden paducas could be worn by common people, paducas of fine teak, ebony, and sandalwood inlaid with ivory or wire were a mark of the wearer's high status. And this is all about shoes. The Bata Shoe Museum. Yes, we will be talking about the Bata Shoe Museum. 
Today, Paducah's footwear is generally worn by mendicants and saints of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. Its significance in Hinduism is linked to the epic Ramayana. Paducah can also refer to the footprints of deities and saints that are venerated. Paducah also means the footprints of divine figures, such as Vishnu and Shiva and other religious icons that are worshipped in this symbolic form in houses and also in temples built for this purpose. One such temple is the Vishnupad Mandir in Gaya, India. Similarly, Buddha footprints are worshipped under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya. It is also the royal symbol in Malaysia. Seri Paducah denotes His Majesty. Oh, yeah! I knew this. Uh, Which is a title (laughs) bestowed as an honor of recognition to the dignitaries of Malaysian court for their outstanding contribution to the betterment of the state. Yeah, so I think Seri and Sri are related. So like Mm -hmm. Sri Lanka. Yeah, so it's like a, a term of respect. That's neat. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> and now we take a hard turn north for Viking shoemaking techniques. A number of complete Viking Age shoes found in Scandinavia and England have the same general construction. So we sort of know how Vikings made their shoes, or at least one kind of their shoe. They're flexible, soft, and mostly made of cattle hide, but also other kinds of leather might have been used. There were complete shoes, more like boots, found in the Oseberg ship burial mound in Norway. Talked about that. And at the Coppergate site in the UK, um, and in York, England, which in the Viking Age was referred to as Jorvik. Which I enjoy. Jorvik. Jorvik. The shoes found in the Oseberg ship consist of two main parts, soles and uppers, and are so-called turn shoes. And that's because the shoemaker stitched the shoe together inside out and then turned turned it right side out when they were done. And this hides the main seam and that prolongs the life of the shoe since the seam isn't out in the open getting scuffed and worn. It also helps prevent moisture from leaking in. And then typically this type of shoe would have been worn with thick felted socks for warmth. Or if you, if you couldn't afford socks, you know, you could stuff it with like wool, bits of wool or moss or, you know, dried grass, Hmm. stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay. So let's, let's move a, we're going to stay in Europe, go a little bit, a little later in time. Thank you. Wow. I was like South in time. (laughs) Let's talk about some silly shoes. Uh, the Poulain. So oh. Originally, Soulier à la Poulain, or oh, shoes in the Polish style, also referred to as Krakows, spelled crack owls, as in yeah, Krakow. Well, yeah, um, these are the stereotypical medieval shoe that you always picture a jester wearing with the long toe that curls up to a point. Silly shoes. Silly, silly shoes. Turns out those shoes existed. Yep, not just for jesters. There are indications that these shoes were worn as early as the 1360s. That's um, a long time ago. The author of the Eulogium Historarium describes men of this period as wearing, quote, points on their soles as long as your finger that are called crackows, more suitable as claws for demons than as ornaments for men. Oh. Yeah, so judgy. <laughs> but so these 14th century poulain toed shoes found in London were only like if you were going to get them in London they were only found in men's sizes. So so big the ones the the ones that um archaeologically have been found have only been found that were <laughs> I big thought enough it was for like men. if you were in the market for shoes in London. No. <laughs> no. The shoes that have been found that have these goofy toes um are only in men's sizes suggesting that at that time only men were wearing poulains. But then later, 
you've got 15th century art that shows them being worn by both men and women. With the toes of men's shoes being the most extravagantly long. Mm. They were a controversial fashion and faced criticism from several quarters. In 1368, Charles V. V. (laughs) Charles V of France issued an edict banning their construction and use in Paris. An English poem from 1388 complained, complained that men were unable to kneel in prayer because their toes were too long. Because when you kneel, you got to tuck the no, toe. No, I'm just like that face Eng- is just English you're, you're poetry of- got better. Yeah. In 1463, well. Edward IV passed a sumptuary. Sumptuary. What's that mean? It has to do with regulating how oh, like opulent you could be in your sumptuousness uh, clothing. Okay. Yes. He passed a yeah. sumptuary law restricting anyone, quote, under the state of a lord, esquire, or gentleman, end quote, from wearing poulains over the length of two inches. In 1465, they were banned in England altogether so that all cordoners. It's spelled cordwainers. Yep. All all cordoners and cobblers within the city of London were prohibited from making shoes with pikes more than two inches long. So surviving examples of these shoes from London have the toes stuffed with moss. And other examples were stuffed with horse hair. Because otherwise you just have like like floppy, floppy things. And here is... Yep. Here is something that Anna loves very, very much and I do. read I do. the script to me before we started recording to let me know. I wanted to make sure you appreciate it. <laughs> it's so dumb. Ahem. As with many items of high fashion, the most extreme examples were worn by the upper classes. In periods when Poulain shoes were popular, most shoes were somewhat pointed, even those used during warfare. There's clear evidence from the Battle of Simpak. It, which is uh, which was in 1386 between a ruler of Austria and some Swiss royal randos. Um, yeah, that in certain periods, soldiers on campaign wore shoes with toes so long as to interfere with the wearer's ability to run, which is something that one does when one is in warfare, in- particularly if one is losing. Yeah. <laughs> And so um, in the Battle of Simpach, it became necessary for the knights of Leopold III, Duke of Austria, to dismount Mm. and fight on foot. Um, And because they did not have time to prepare for the engagement, they were forced to cut off the tips of their poulains. The Swiss chroniclers report how a huge pile of these shoe tips was found in a heap after the battle, and they are also depicted in the background of the battle scene in the Lucerne Chronicle of 1513. Now, granted, this is the Swiss chroniclers, and these were the ones who were fighting against the Austrians. So it may be at a little of, like, a jab at the Austrians, like they're so silly or, or like, mm-hmm. sissy that they had to cut the tips off their shoesies because they had to run away, but... It is documented that the shoes were that long and ridiculous, so I choose to envision the scene as as accurate. Um, even more silly shoes. Uh, we're going to talk about Chopin's and Shakespeare a little. So a Chopin is a type of women's platform shoe that was popular in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. 
they were originally used as a clog or overshoe to protect the shoes and your the hem of your dress, if you're a lady, from the mud and street soil. Because keep in mind, back in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, shoe, the, the streets were filthy. They were, people dumped all kinds of stuff out on the street. It was very icky. But then... But don't the show Chapines, those ankles. Don't you dare. No, make your feet taller so that your ankles can stay under your dresses, but your dresses don't become filthy. Um, so then those Chopines started getting fancy and extremely, extremely tall. The height of the Chopin became a symbolic reference to the cultural, cultural and social standing of the wearer. The higher the Chopin, the higher the status of the wearer. High Chopines allowed a woman to tower over others. So during the Renaissance, Chopines were made increasingly taller. Some extant examples are over 20 inches or 50 centimeters high. And so I've seen illustrated depictions of these where a woman is sort of teetering down the street and she's got her hands on the shoulders of two servants because she can't walk like she's wearing block stilts and she can't walk normally so she has two servants to keep her steady well you know Um, she kind of has it coming because she shouldn't have left the house in the first place no absolutely In 1430, the height of Chopin's was limited by Venetian law. So again, it was related to another sumptuary law to three inches, but this regulation was widely ignored. Shakespeare jokes about the extreme height of the Chopin's in style in his day in Hamlet, specifically in Act 2, Scene 2 of Hamlet. The Danish prince greets one of the visiting players, and this was the adolescent boy who would have played the lady parts in the all-male actor's troupe. And he, uh, Hamlet notes how much nearer to heaven the kid had grown since he last saw him. And he says, you've grown by, quote, the altitude of a Chopin. So you're, you're one whole Chopin higher since I last saw you, kid. It would have really killed in Shakespeare's day. And now, <laughs> shoe museums. Shoeseums. Shoeseums! So there's a shoe museum. There, there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole passel but of this them. One, this one's in street, Somerset. Yeah. <laughs> England. Yeah, it's called Street. And that shoe museum, shoeseum, um, exhibits shoes dating from the Roman era to the present day. And so it shows the history of the Clark family and their company, C.N.J. Clark, and its connection with the development of shoemaking in the town, Street. The Clarks started making slippers, shoes, and boots in the town in the 1820s, and the company grew, introducing mechanized processes in the 1860s. Protection continued until after 2000 when it was moved offshore, offshore, using third-party factories <laughs> predominantly located in Asia. In the 19th century, in line with the family's Quaker values, that cap- the capital was also extended beyond the factory to benefit social initiatives in street. A school was founded so that young men and women could combine working in the factory with continuing their education. A theater was opened. A library was built along with an open-air swimming pool known as Green Bank, and a town hall. The museum started yeah, nice. Ni- yeah. The museum started in 1951, but was expanded in 1974. It has examples <laughs> of shoes from the 200 years of the company's history. The museum also includes a display of machinery used in footwear production and a selection of shop display show cards from the 1930s, 50s, and 60s. No shoes in the 40s. They had other stuff going on then. It was a time of war. And television advertisements. The museum includes the first clogs worn by Gracie Fields and the wedding shoes of Diana, Princess of Wales. Mm-hmm. Okay, next museum. So here's just some 
some uh, shoeseum facts and stats. So we've got the Bata Shoe Museum, which is in Tirana, Toronto. Yearly visitors to the Bata Shoe Museum, 125,000. Most exotic item, a pair of Napoleon socks acquired at a documents auction. In, that's, socks aren't documents. Socks. <laughs> uh, at Sotheby's in England. Oldest shoes, 4,500-year-old Egyptian funerary sandals. Then we've got the Dutch Leather and Shoe Museum, which is in Valvik, I guess, the Netherlands. History, uh, it was founded in 1954 in a former shoe factory. Boy, the 50s were really a time for shoe museums, huh? The most exotic item, I highlighted this and wrote a note to myself that says, what a terrible idea. But the most exotic item at the Valvik Museum is a topless shoe by American designer Beth Levine. Constructed without an upper, it was meant to be worn glued to the bottom of the foot. That's art. Then there's one called SUNS, which stands for shoes or no shoes. And it's located in Krieshutum in Belgium. In May 2009, Dirk van der Schuren, chairman of the Belgian footwear firm Cortina Group, created a shoe experience inspired by his love of art and passion for the footwear business. Uh, it gets 6,000 visitors a year. The most exotic item is an early 20th century men's thick-soled sandal from Brazil's Amazon region, constructed of tapir hide soles and rope string uppers. Oldest shoes, a pair dating from about 10,000 BCE. The pair was found in the Southwest U.S., maybe in a cave. It's made of braided yucca leaves. The most unusual acquisition is a pair of men's sandals from the Okaukejo Himba tribe in Namibia. The tribe's elderly chief declined an offer of money for the sandals since it meant he'd have to make a new pair, but he later agreed to swap them for a pair of Nikes. Uh, the priciest artifact in that museum uh, are a pair of boots made in Iran of woven gilded silver wire. Wow. It sounds really uncomfortable. Yeah. Wire boots. Ow. The, what is um, written here as the most difficult purchase, Chinese three-inch Sanzun Jinlian lotus shoes on Huapandi stilts designed for women with bound feet. So that's a whole nother kettle of fish, yep. really. That uh, we will do an episode about at some point, but there's a lot of culture and there's a lot going on with body modification. And, yeah, and, and so there's a lot going on cultural, there. So we'll talk about culturally informed, culturally driven uh, body modification at some point in the future. So yeah, get excited an episode for another time. No, I mean that's it's a really cool concept. There's just it's a lot to unpack. Mm -hmm. So that that concludes our our shoe tour, pile of shoes in the cave of this podcast. Thank you for listening. We will be back in your ears soon, and you can put us there via SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast platform of your choosing. Yeah, and you can follow us on the Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. Yep, and you can see those all together at thedirtpod.com. And you can write to us about your favorite shoes at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber or single-time donor. Either way, we would be extremely grateful. And you can do that at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.